Welcome to another Pro Video Coalition podcast. This is a uh, not scheduled podcast. I was trying to figure out how to say welcome to another podcast that we don't schedule regularly. We just do them when topics come up and there are things that we want to talk about. So here's another one. But this is another one about remote editing because we did one of these a few months ago at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was quarantined and socially distanced and deciding they had to remote edit. And we are now following this up to see the state of where we kind of are today, months and months into the um, pandemic. I'm joined again by Mr. Michael Thomas of uh, Bebop Technology and uh, Big Brain about all things post-production technology. And Michael was the one who chatted with me when we did the original podcast about it. And that date of that podcast was, I'm checking now, March 16th. Michael, how are you faring months into this uh, pandemic? Well, you know, there are many nights that I'm pacing around my small little house here uh, going stir crazy because I feel like I'm, I'm being cooped up in a, in a small building. But other than that, it's been a, a from a tech not, from a tech standpoint, it's been very exciting over the past several months because uh, what is that phrase? Necessity is the mother of, of invention. Yes, it is. Uh, and so we've seen a, a, a tremendous leap forward in adoption of of newer technologies to combat uh, the, the social distancing that, that has to be done. So it's been a very interesting uh, and challenging last uh, five or six months. It has. And uh, we're also joined today by uh, Zeke Margolis. Zeke is with Melrose Mac, who, as someone who lives in flyover country, I've often heard the name Melrose Mac as being kind of a uh, legend, legendary place, legendary service out in the West Coast. And I believe Melrose Mac was also hit with the uh, some of the rioting not too long ago. Um, Zeke, welcome to this podcast. Tell us a little bit about about Melrose Mac. And hopefully, uh, you know, after those the time of unrest, things are a little bit back to normal there at the I assume that's a storefront. Yeah. So Melrose Mac is actually many companies within one. So Melrose Mac's flagship store at uh, Melrose and Highland Avenue has been serving the community for 17 years. Um, we have a second retail location in Burbank, uh, Stone's Throw from the Warner Brothers lot on Olive and Buena Vista. But over the last five to six years, uh, the business has expanded and our Melrose Tech Division employs over a dozen subject matter experts in a wide variety of technologies, everything from Avid and Adobe, traditional file-based workflow to Amazon Web Services, virtualization, and everything in between. So we serve a lot of the community in a variety of ways. Uh, I focus more into um, media workflow and have been part of a small group that's been helping to redefine that as COVID-19 has forced a lot of people to rethink and uh, rework their workflows in order to continue to work uh, under the quarantine conditions. So how, well, actually, first let me ask you again about um, when there was the, uh, the civil unrest a couple of months ago, did, uh, I heard that Melrose Mac got Yeah, unfortunately, um, we were um, victims on uh, May 29th. Uh, there were um, planned uh, protests uh, in the general area. Those uh, got a little out of control, and, and as they moved up from, Fairfax onto Melrose and down Melrose, we were unfortunately um, looted. Um, it was publicized live on uh, KTLA Channel 4. We actually spent 
um, several hours um, on live television being looted and our corporate offices were set on fire. So that was a very um, sad day and certainly eight weeks or so into the pandemic sort of um, adding salt to the wound, if you will. But the good news is that um, there's been an amazing amount of support and uh, out outpouring from the community, both clients and vendors since then. Um, we're currently um, up and operational in a temporary location, just about a block um, west of our main store. And we're well underway in terms of uh, repairs to the store. So we're hoping within the next four to six weeks to kind of have a, a reopening event. But in the meantime, we, we are open for business. Our, our Apple Service Center and our retail stores are open. And our, um, it's, it's funny, um, given the pandemic, um, a lot of our corporate team was already working remotely. So it, it could have been more disruptive. But um, we do have our technical services team uh, also set up uh, in a temporary office and uh, available to work on projects. And we've been keeping very busy. Well, I'm glad everybody is, uh, is safe and we are still all, uh, you know, thinking about everybody who's been affected by not just COVID, but the unrest. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of, st- we, we could go deep into all the stuff going on right now, but let's talk about remote, remote editing, remote work. Cause that's what we're here for. So Michael, let's jump to you for a minute here. Um, for those who just want the uh, too long didn't read of and have listened to the other podcast, what would you say has changed since we recorded that on March 16th? Is it now easy? Everybody can just throw all terabytes of data up in the cloud and stream it in real time into your nonlinear editor and edit um, with no problems. Are we there yet? Uh, we're never going to be there. And if, and if we ever get to the time when we are there, I'll be out of a job. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. What we have seen is uh, when we did our podcast several months ago, we were in panic mode. And now, now Bebop wasn't in panic mode, but everyone else was because, you know, folks were locked out of their buildings, right? They said, you can't come to work. So there was this uh, instant, wh- what do we do to finish up the work we already have? What are the stop gaps we can do? Because uh, while we're old pros at COVID at this point, we weren't in the beginning, Right. So there was a lot of uh, let's try and see what works off the shelf. And so people were using uh, remote software like uh, TeamViewer or Parsec or Apple Remote Desktop or Jump Desktop or No Machine, you know, these more gaming centric or IT centric screen sharing applications to get in to their machines at work. And, And, you know, in a very narrow use case, they'll they'll work. They'll do what you need it to. But. Uh, what we found is after the dust settled and the pa- the panic uh, wasn't it wasn't as strong, I should say, uh, a lot of corporations started looking out to the future and to say, okay, we have our stopgap here. We've got our duct tape and bumper stickers right now. What about in two months? What about in six months? Uh, what if this goes on for longer than that? Do we even need to have a a storefront or a large real estate footprint, because at that point you're just paying for an expensive uh, uh, mailbox, right? So, so to to kind of come back to what you uh, asked, what we're seeing is that people aren't as panicked about workflows; they're now more methodical, and so there's much more research being done into what remote editing 
uh, system and the paradigm will work. And so we're seeing a lot more calculated uh, 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 corporations looking into, into doing this. Well, I, I think, uh, Zeke, if someone had come to you on uh, early March when this kind of hit and, and said, hey, I need to edit remotely, and they came to you today and said, I need to edit remotely, your answer, I'm guessing, would have been very different from March to August, or or would or is it yeah, the well, same? Yeah, well, there there are a few variables to to look at there. I think the first thing is that um, early on there was sort of an awakening in that most people, most executives, I would say, um, weren't very cognizant of sort of the elephant in the room in that a lot of the technology that enables remote editing is not new and in the IT world has been in use for many years, in, in some cases, you know, over 10 years, but it hasn't been very often applied into a post-production workflow. So people haven't invested in that type of technology because they hadn't needed to. And all of a sudden in the middle of March, everybody needed to write at once. So that um, created a couple of very sort of stark realities for people. Number one, realizing how unprepared they were from the standpoint of things like bandwidth and network security. And number two, also realizing that the supply chain was heavily impacted in that um, it wasn't just the media and entertainment industry that was affected by COVID, the government, the military, you know, the medical industry. So, so some of the major um, vendors of hardware that are critical components to building your own remote editing system, all of that equipment was being prioritized sort of by emergency order of the government that um, military and medical orders came first. So when you're in the middle of production and all of a sudden, as Michael was saying, you're, you're now told you're not able to go to your office, you're, you know, look, as you're looking at options, um, your options are, are very limited. Right. So what people were actually able to do had a lot to do with how prepared they were. And most people weren't very prepared. So that was beneficial, certainly for companies like Bebop, because um, cloud service providers and, and cloud based uh, you know, solutions were one of the few areas that had properly invested uh, into those type of resources ahead of time. They sort of knew that this was uh, only a matter of a when, not a matter of if that this kind of need would exist. But um, in terms of what we do at Melrose, you know, a lot of clients didn't have the option to um, look at remote editing solutions simply because they weren't ready. So a lot of people went with what they could do. And, and a lot of those solutions have revolved around uh, local hard drives or, or the synchronization, synchronization of hard drives with remote users from a, a common point. And those type of workflows were able to work because part and parcel with COVID shutting down um, a lot of the business community, it also shut down production. So effectively, the, you know, the, the water got turned off and, and people just needed to be worried about um, the content that they had commitments to deliver already. Um, so fast forward five months here and um, now the, the, you know, the market looks different in that number one, we've been back in production for about a month now. So people are starting to go out and figure out how to create content again. So some of the sort of band-aids and bumper stickers, as Michael was saying, that worked a few months ago 
are going to no work not as well as sort of an ongoing business uh, dynamic. Number two, people have learned what they're missing and uh, people who didn't have a lot to do. A, a lot of businesses just sort of shut down for a few months and, and now as they're opening back up are wanting to invest in those type of things that allow you to have a functional remote workflow. Michael mentioned a bunch of different, you know, kind of tools. And, and I think one of the things, uh, Scott, to take into consideration is what a viable solution is, has a lot to do with your particular environment. Because the reality is, if you're sitting at home on a one gig fiber connection with a brand new, you know, 2019 Mac Pro at your disposal, just about anything will provide you a good experience for working offline, you know, if you're doing proxy editing. And there are a number of people that are using a number of services that, you know, are able to work in that dynamic. It's different if your equipment is, you know, a 2013 Mac Pro and you have a 100 megabit cable modem at home. That, that narrows the field of what is actually going to work for you um, considerably. So I think what we do or what we try to do anyway is really talk about um, the requirements and understand the environment before we get to recommending what remote editing solutions might be appropriate. Right. Well, let's let's run down a couple of solutions. And, and Michael and I talked about these a little bit uh, in March and sort of talk about how they are implemented now. And, and I'll use personal experience for a couple of them because I've used a couple of them. The first was the use of the uh, the RG um, RGS software, which is that who makes that software? That's HP. Me. HP, and the reason I was able to use it because um, in downtown Nashville, there's a, there's a, there's a facility with a full Avid infrastructure, and we need to do a show. They shipped a hard drive to a number of editors around town. I'm sorry, a laptop and a, a MacBook Pro. Uh, using RGS software, we remoted into their PCs, and there in the RGS software on this MacBook Pro, I had the interface of the Avid running uh, running downtown. Now, uh, I had to keep the screen res at like 1080, so I could it could didn't have a lot of resolution on the screens. I had to make my bin small. I could not make the composer window larger than you know about as small as it would go, or it would start to drop frames. I'm running on a Comcast connection here at about 200 megs a second down, about 12 or 10 or 12 up. And I was surprised at how smooth and good that editing experience was. And that was working off of um, would have been DNX 175, you know, broadcast media. So that worked shockingly well, uh, you know, besides the fact that the, the, you know, the monitor was small and I couldn't get a full screen client output. But just sitting down and editing, it felt like the media was, was here with me. It seems like a perfect solution, you know, and I'm sure it's still fine. Like, talk about that solution for a minute. Is that still viable? Has it gotten better? Sure. Absolutely. So, first of all, HP in April renamed that product to Z Central Remote Boost. Um, I'm say sorry. that five times fast. Z Central um, Remote Boost. Yeah, RGS is the oh technology, and, and RGS has actually been a product from HP that's part of their workstation family for over 10 years. Um, heretofore, before COVID, it was mostly um, utilized in the VFX and CGI communities um, to access remote rendering systems on, you know, large uh, compute cycles. But um, with the advent of, you know, remote desktoping, um, 
they've rebranded it as Z Central Remote Boost moving forward. So if you buy a Z Series workstation from HP, you get a permanent license of the software for life. Uh, if you don't, um, you can buy a license to put on other PCs, um, or as many people have done with older generation, you know, Macintosh is using tools like Bootcamp, um, and you can pay for a license. Uh, again, back in back in March when we were sort of in triage mode, uh, a lot of people got 90-day temporary licenses, which HP was gracious enough to offer, and that's kind of how they got up and running. So the, the, the good and the bad of RGS, um, you know, there's a saying um, in the tech industry of MVP or minimum viable product. And so for a lot of people, RGS was the MVP. Um, certainly, as you were describing, Scott, any environment that had existing infrastructure, such as an Avid ISIS or Nexus or a Quantum Store Next, um, some sort of collaborative shared storage and had an environment where multiple people were working off of a common set of media. RGS presented the easiest way to um, continue that workflow. And because there was Mac support, really all that it required a business to do was purchase Z uh, series PCs uh, you know, implement them in in place of their Mac edit systems, and send all of the editors home with those Mac editing systems. Uh, but but if you had those ZPCs already in your facility, you're 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 golden. You're, you're even Absol more golden because then absolutely. you just absolutely yeah. here in Los Angeles, the percentage of uh, editorial systems that are PCs versus Macs is a little bit low. I don't know what you would say, Michael. I I, I would probably think it's something like eighty percent Mac at least. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of facilities with a lot of Macs. And the unfortunate reality is that, you know, Apple does not allow the virtualization of their operating systems. So any remote solution is going to have some level of PC integrated into it. But for the creative user, as long as they were still on a Mac, which they, which they can be with RGS, um, opening a window seemed to be fine. You know, the limitations are, as you said, um, single monitor support because you're basically doing pixel mapping and, you know, emulating the the graphics output out of that PC to a remote connection. Um, so for people who are used to having two or three monitors, um, it's not the same, um, but it's definitely been the 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 least expensive because HP has a... Um, model of the Z series called the G2 Mini, which is basically, as it would sound, a, a mini PC. So it's inexpensive. Um, it's about the price of an Apple Mac Mini, um, but it includes that Z Central Remote Boost license. So what it actually costs to get your 10 users of um, whatever NLE uh, up and running with that workflow was substantially lower than any of the other options out there. And for people who were doing offline editing or proxy editing, um, that was adequate. And the bandwidth requirements are fairly low. So I think that that's probably been, now that we have you know, four or five months worth of uh, you know, information to review, has definitely been the fan favorite in terms of the workflow deployed most often and, and also at the largest scales.
Gotcha. Michael, I don't want to rehash the podcast from March, but uh, like talking RGS, that sounds a lot like uh, uh, Team Viewer or Log Me In or Jump Desktop, but it's, it's, it's not exactly the same baby, is it or, or is it? Now, RGS is, is a heck of a lot better. Uh, the, the other screen sharing protocols that you had mentioned, uh, like TeamViewer and, and uh, Jump Desktop and, and whatnot, those you know, are, are either meant for IT usage. So, hey, I need to remote in and change a password or re-render something. You know, it's not meant for the creative use. And when you start looking at uh, like Parsec and things like that, those, that was meant for gaming, which really isn't uh, the same as uh, what you need for video editing. So RGS is definitely one of the top ones out there. Uh, the other one, which uh, I obviously work with uh, quite a bit, uh, is Teradici and PC over IP or PC over IP Ultra. Those are pretty much the, the de facto standards in terms of high quality remote desktop use with AV sync, with low latency, uh, and with a multi-screen uh, and high frame rate support. Those are usually the ones you're going to go to. Uh, the, the folks that do use uh, uh, Parsec or Jump Desktop are usually in um, very advantageous uh, uh, positions, meaning they're not remoting to into a system that is a thousand miles away, uh, or they have a fiber connection at their house, or they're not power editors, so if there's a little bit more latency, it doesn't bother them as much. So uh, I, I'm typically seeing those in kind of smaller deployments, but usually RGS or Teradici uh, are the way to go when you're uh, extending out from your facility out to where you're editing. Well, yeah. what surprised me about RGS was that uh, the the frame rate was was good. It was full full frame rates in sync video. I did, and I, I think I expected I expected it not to work as well as it did. I, I had run an Ethernet cable through the middle of my house to give me a hardwired connection, but some mornings, you know, I was lazy and didn't want to run it, and I just I just worked off the Wi-Fi, and it's, it's it still worked uh, worked quite well. If I if I if I was okay with just the you know the small. Uh, media composer, uh, you know, source record monitor, and, but but yeah, it, it kept up well. Yep. So, Teradici uh, is definitely a very popular solution. It, I would say it's one step up from RGS as it relates to capability, but also cost. So, with Teradici, in addition to having a PC as your transmitter. You also need to have a card in that PC to send out the connections to your remote user and you need a remote user interface. So if your remote user is like you were saying, Scott, your MacBook Pro, you're going over an Internet connection, what they call um, Teradici Cloud Access Portal, and then you are still limited as RGS to a single monitor. Whoa, whoa! Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, Zeke. I, I let the first one slide, but I can't let the second one slide. Okay. Uh, you don't need to have a card. No, it's uh, Teradici has a uh, PC uh, PCIe card, but it's also software based. So you can put a software server, for lack of a better term, on the workstation, whether it's local at your office or whether it's uh, running in the cloud. Also, with Teradici, you can use up to four monitors, and that's on a zero client or a desktop client. In fact, here at home, I have a 34-inch ultra-wide at 4K and a 2.5K monitor, and Teradici, uh, the software version, can push both of those. So and, I didn't want to interrupt, but I want to make sure that people understand no, that's that, okay. that those appreciate, are limitations. Appreciate it. So we have generally implemented Teradici, as Michael was just saying, 
for people who want to have the traditional edit bay experience at home. So if you use a, a zero client, um, you can have, we, we haven't generally done four, but we have done three a number of times, you know, full resolution monitors. Obviously that incurs the cost of a zero client and an additional layer of software above and beyond what it costs to do RGS. So I, I would say it's probably the second most popular um, option because most most editors will, can accept, like Michael was saying, a 34-inch monitor at home and just kind of stretch the screen out and work with one monitor if it's a lower cost per user. What would a bandwidth be for something like that that you just described? Usually 20 to 50 megabits. Uh, if you're using Teradici, Teradici is uh, a variable bit rate uh, because, as Zeke mentioned earlier, um, the only thing that's changing on your screen from moment to moment are the change in pixels. So if you have your program monitor up and you have your timeline and you hit play, obviously your playhead is moving. Obviously the uh, pixels on the program monitor, uh, if we're talking Adobe, are changing. Uh, so that will in, uh, have the data rate go up to you know, 40 megabits roughly. And then you hit stop, the data rate drops down to 20 because there's no pixels moving. The only thing that's being transmitted are uh, you know the, the encrypted packets. So uh, you really don't need to have a fast connection. Um, what you do need to have is latency, is lack thereof uh, latency. So uh, you don't want to be... Uh, remoting into a machine on the East Coast when you're on the West Coast, right? That That's not going to give a good experience. And I think just to, to, to second that, that's another reason that a lot of these other solutions like Jump Desktop or Splash Desktop or Log Me In um, don't work well is that um, there is latency. And so if you are on a very fast connection with a very fast computer, you might not notice it. But most people aren't, and so most people do. And again, for a for a five-minute IT fix, which is what those tools were built for, it's fine. But an editor who's needing to spend six to eight hours a day using that as their primary tool, it leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. yeah. When we talk about latency, let, let me slide to the side for a second. Um, is latency a direct result of, of your upload from one machine to the other? Because like if I'm getting 200 megs down for on my connection, for instance, and only 12 up, like if I am doing something here and I'm and I'm and I'm sending data back to the machine, like a keystroke or you know, I guess it would all be keystrokes and mouse movements. Is that when we talk about latency? Is is a faster upload mean less latency if you have a really fast download? Good question. Latency is made up of a thousand variables, and I'm I'm not oh, uh, uh, yeah, and and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, just to name a few. Your keyboard, your mouse, your computer, the length of your cables, your hard drive, the OS you're running, the application on your machine, your monitor, what kind of cable you're using, your internet connection, are you wireless or wired, what hops are you going through? All of those add latency, and it becomes death by a thousand paper cuts, yeah. essentially. All right. So I give up. And, uh, and so what we've found, Scott, is even in environments like RGS or Teradici, um, mileage varies based upon the remote users, um, both ISPs and, um, you know, bandwidth as well as other, you know, sort of local 
um, variables like Michael is describing, but uh, definitely users that have lower latency have a better experience. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, let's transition to uh, another 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 technology. Uh, and Michael, and we let's let's preface this little part of the conversation that this is not an ad for Bebop technology, um, but I think that what has happened here with remote editing and and the pandemic and whatnot, Bebop really came into its own because it was sort of like built just waiting for this for this to happen. So I'm guessing that I know between when we talked in March and now. Um, I've played with it. I've tested it out. There's, there's a, um, you know, the, the test drive that I think is either online or coming online. You've, I'm sure you've had tons of interest from, from consumers and new customers. Wh- where does that, where does that fit into the puzzle? Because Bebop is its own unique island in this remote editing world, or at least I see it as its, as its own unique island. There's a lot to that question. Uh, yes, uh, there's been an explosion of interest. And uh, to what Zeke said earlier about the the MVP minimum viable product, uh, back in January, the minimum viable product for every editor we spoke with was, I need to have two 4K monitors. I need to have a 16-channel mixer. I need to have a confidence <laughs> monitor. Uh, and, and I get Hold it. On. I, I, Hang on. <laughs> let, me, let me laugh for another few minutes there about that. Yeah, that's what we all and, want. And I, and I, and I get that. Yeah, that's all. But, you know, as my mom used to say, you know, there's wants and there's needs, Michael. And so what we found is is folks would rather have a job and would rather edit on a laptop uh, without a confidence monitor or edit at home with kids screaming than not having a job. And what we found is that uh, it, the perceived uh, gear that was needed was just that it was perceived. It isn't something that was needed by and large for a lot of editors. Now, I'm certainly not saying that all editors never need a confidence monitor. It's, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying for a lot of work that's being done out there that will never hit broadcast, never go to film, is meant for internet, you can do a lot of that on a monitor and a laptop, right? Right. So we saw a lot of people uh, jumping on to Bebop, but but the, the, the main differentiator is that I think a lot of creatives are going out there and looking for a solution for them, which is fine. What we found was the greater need was teams of editors, teams of creatives that encompassed graphics folks and audio folks and everyone else in the post process that makes a project get finished. All of them needed access to the same content at the same time and they needed to collaborate. So it was much less, here's one person who needs a powerful machine and that's it. Uh, much less that and more, I'm a creative agency. I have six different projects going on. I have five editors on each project. All of them need to work with shared storage. How do we do that? Gotcha. And that's where Bebop was able to say from day one, hey, this is what we've built. We've built shared storage in the cloud. We've got your uh, security that passed, uh, you know, studio audits. We've, we have all the metrics and analytics so you can reconcile your, your freelancer billing versus how many hours they used. We had all that. And, you know, we, as I've said many times, we weren't built for the pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, we were the, the uh, last man standing, so mm-hmm. to speak. We, there, there really isn't uh, any other service out there. Uh, uh, and I, I am not saying that from a marketing perspective. We're the only ones out there doing the shared storage and everything else that allows people to create together. But uh, some interesting things that we've come across uh, in the past six months is uh, there are challenges uh, for bandwidth that we never would have anticipated 
uh, six months ago. What do you mean, like uh, kids you know, doing uh, multiple kids at home doing Zoom schooling at the same exactly, time someone's trying to edit? Exactly. It's it's Netflix. It's uh, video conferencing. It's uh, partners and husbands and wives saying, "Hey, can you edit when I'm not on a con call?" Those kinds of things, and we then start to see. Um, how insecure some of these home networks are. We begin to see that everyone is working wireless, even though you shouldn't work wireless when you're editing. And so we're seeing uh, greater latency uh, because of some of these things. So a lot of these factors that uh, routinely were handled on-prem by IT people, we're now having to kind of educate uh, creatives at home on what QoS is. How do you go into your home router and set quality of service rules? Right. So so it becomes a, a very interesting uh, change uh, uh, in, in handling network uh, issues. Well, that's interesting. I think that um, so it sounds to me like Bebop now versus March or January, you're still doing what you were doing then five months ago, eight months ago. You're just doing it better and faster now. Is that is that safe to say? I mean, you've obviously had a lot more customers than you probably would have if the pandemic wouldn't have happened. Were you able to scale into those new customers easily? Yeah, luckily. Yeah. In fact, uh, a great story. Uh, and I'm only I think I can only talk about this because um, they happened to do a webinar with us this past week. But the NFL, um, they uh, were with Bebop uh, for over a year. I Actually, I think they were one of the, the first clients I dealt with when I came to Bebop. And they were on the platform with five or six users. And then on a Thursday, the facility, I think, in Culver City got shut down. They all had to go home. Uh, they scaled up to several dozen within a week. Uh, and now we're looking at over 80 workstations. Wow. So, yeah, the ability for for us to scale up and have everyone working at the same time was because Bebop spent a hell of a long time on the plumbing, on getting the base foundation uh, uh, it, created in a modular way that we could grow to scale without simply saying, let's just spin up more VMs and see what happens. Very nice. So we've got all these years of experience to, to, to kind of prep for <laughs> this. And so what it really, what, what the pandemic really helped us is uh, get the cycle down from, okay, this will take two to three weeks to get someone stood up on Bebop to now we're doing it in days. Gotcha. So we've really been able to, to hone our process. And of course, you know, influx of money doesn't help, or I'm sorry, does help when you're a startup <laughs> and you want to develop new features. So that certainly helps as well. In, in, influx of money helps when you want to, you know, pay your mortgage and you, you're not working for several months too. So that's all, that's all <laughs> yes. good stuff. So let me ask you a similar question to that. If someone walked in, you know, to uh, Melrose or was talking to you in February and said, you know what, I want to remote edit with, you know, I got six editors and, and two assistants on this reality show. You would, you would, would you, how much different of an answer would you give them if they asked you that today than you would have given them in February? Well, well, a pretty significant one. And I think that, um, uh, having had the opportunity, um, to also work with Bebop and, and connect the clients with it, it, it is a fantastic platform. Um, the only limitation at the moment is there's no avid media composer support. And so for a lot of, um, companies, that's a non-starter because they and their editors are very much um, committed to the Avid workflow. Mm -hmm. So Avid has, you know, comparable product out there that they are developing in the cloud. But there are also challenges, I think, for a lot of companies to cloud workflow overall. So six months ago, your your options were pretty much, you know, Bebop if, um, 
you know, Premiere was an acceptable option or, you know, Avid has a product called Edit on Demand, which is a, a collaboration with um, Microsoft Azure and is still in a um, early stage. It has not been rolled out, you know, widely for public consumption. But, but they th have that wasn't even a thing in February, was it or was it? It, it, it was, it, it, well, it was and it wasn't, you know, edit on demand was on Avid's website. So it was publicly, you know, it, it was a publicly introduced product. It was not commercially available. Yeah, I think I remember seeing so, a demo of that in maybe like three years ago or they, something like they, that. They were doing some proof of concept with specific clients, but, and still it, it's not a fully rolled out product, you know, for the masses. Okay. Um, but uh, that was the option because... Um, if you didn't already have the infrastructure in your facility, um, you weren't going to be able to get it in a timely manner. And so then the question became, uh, you know, if it, like you were asking, if you came to me six months ago and said, hey, I need six people up and editing remotely and, and you didn't have the infrastructure, you know, your choices were fairly limited. Um, over the last six months, a number of uh, sort of traditional post services companies have pivoted and started offering, you know, what I would refer to as, you know, hybrid uh, media cloud workflows where mm. whereby they are hosting traditional equipment, you know, so hosting uh, an Avid Nexus or a Quantum Store Next, what have you uh, in a data center, um, but allowing users to connect to it over the same types of remote technologies that are in use by Bebop and, you know, Avid uh, edit on demand. So that, that sounds expensive and can't be trusted. Uh, well, I think it's, um, uh, there's different arguments about that. I think a lot of people are still somewhat fearful about putting their content into the cloud to know where it specifically is mm -hmm. versus saying, Hey, we have a nexus with your media on it in a data center that we're managing. So we, we know where your data is and we can physically go touch it. And so can you, um, uh, additionally, um, a, a number of companies have implemented, uh, sort of custom security on top of that as a service to say, you know, one of the things we have not talked about yet, but I think is warranted is that, um, in a triage environment, People are not working at, or people are not thinking as much about things like security. They're just concerned with getting the work done. Sure. Um, but over time, if if a larger portion of the workforce decides to stay remote, um, then you have the challenge of most people at home don't have any security on their network other than what's provided by their internet service provider. Mm -hmm. And most internet service providers that are servicing um, residential customers are not intending for them to be doing things like remote video editing. So that creates a level of exposure where a number of companies have introduced, you know, custom where the, you know, the home user in addition to getting a zero client is also getting a programmed, you know, network security appliance that, Think, think about it as the key that is going to unlock a connection to the door that is that storage hosted at a, you know, at a data center. So only people can get in who have that, you know, endpoint device. And that creates a layer of network security that, 
as people are starting to get back to work and as studios and other types of clients are starting to think about things like security for all of those remote users, it becomes more important. Be, so to, to take a, a kind of a, a slight turn, what I would tell people now is a little bit different because um, over the last six months, a lot of customers, you know, leases have come up on their on their commercial real estate. And uh, even though people are allowed to go back to work, um, a lot of people aren't comfortable going back to work yet, Scott, because we're not quite out of the woods with COVID-19. And so if you're in an environment where nobody wants to do anything but remote editing, um, how much office do you really need? And what does your office need to do for you other than host that centralized technology that, you know, multiple users can access remotely. And so uh, with that as a construct, you know, kind of looking at what it costs to host your equipment on a high speed network connection and connect your six remote users in comparison to what it costs to build the entire um, infrastructure and support it in the cloud right, is something that people are starting to take a closer look at. That's got to be a really big sit-down discussion with the accountants and the technology people and the engineers, because you're talking a big, massive shift from this facility with, with, with tons of avids and tons, or, you know, tons of editing stations, tons of, tons of editors, the engineers to keep at the assists versus putting all those people back at home. That's a pretty... That's a that's a, a big difference for a lot of a lot of people involved. Maybe not so much for the editors because you're kind of still doing the same thing you're doing, but all the support around it, it's uh, that's quite a big change. It it definitely is a change, but I, but I would argue, and and I think Michael would probably agree, um, the world has changed, right? I don't I don't think we're ever going to get back to the way we were before mid March. Um, we may get closer than we are now, but a lot of people have kind of got to experience a different paradigm of working for the first time. And a lot of the notions uh, they've had about it are, are being proven false, right? That there's a lot of misconceptions about that out about what you can and can't do effectively working from home. And at least from the clients that I'm interfacing with and talking to, even with all of the safety protocols being followed, given the choice, um, the majority of people are, are still not ready to go back to work. Now, that could change in six months from now or a year from now, wherever it is that, you know, we have a cure or we have a vaccine or whatever the kind of the outcome of the story with COVID winds up being. But for the foreseeable future, that's the business dynamic that we're in. And so if you have to work remotely, um, how you set up for that remote workflow is, is going to vary. And, and again, there are, there are many variables to consider. Um, so, you know, just as an example, one is how much media are you talking about? Right. Because if you, you know, if your shoot ratios are reasonable, again, just like hey, we I, I, about, let me let me laugh for five minutes with shoot yeah. ratios being reasonable. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'll laugh with you. Please. Yes. Um, but it, dependent upon, you know, how many people. Right. How much media 
and for what duration, right, are, are going to have an impact on that analysis. Because it's one thing if you're doing, you know, a short um, production or you're doing a digital production where um, it's six people for a couple of months. It's quite a different thing if you're doing a long form documentary project that may go, you know, a year or longer. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about um, let's talk about the future within the few minutes we have left here. Like, where are we going from here? I, I'll, I think the only thing I would add to a discussion of like what's next for remote editing is is something like a lucid link which i've been i've been able to test out and play with which is you know their pitch of of your your media is uploaded from your machine kind of living in the cloud and you mount you mount this virtual system this virtual hard drive in a sense on your desktop and then you can in a sense just play the media right out of the cloud you know in you know in your nle and it's it's a pretty you know for for what they're doing, I never would have dreamed that would be possible. And you know, I think that's something that we did not even I don't think we even had that as an option back in uh, back in March or March or February. Um, you know, what about something like that? Is that is that a viable thing for the future? Is there something we don't even know about, or something that's you know just testing right now that's going to change change this remote editing for us all? Or what's 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 next? Well, I think there's two schools of thought in the future. One is that all of us are going to, uh, for work purposes, have a underpowered computer or a dumb terminal, and that's going to allow you to remote into uh, a high-performance machine in the cloud or in someone's data center. And then there's the other side of that, which is, no, 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 people still want their own machines. They want their own apps. Uh, they want it running on their machine, but the media can be hosted in the cloud. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion back and forth over what is the paradigm uh, in the future. I don't think it's going to be one or the other, just like not everyone uses Avid, not everyone uses Premiere, not everyone uses Mac OS. Uh, of course, uh, working for Bebop, I'm, I'm very, uh, for years now, I've been of the mindset that uh, when it comes to uh, machines that have a lot of horsepower, uh, it's financially uh, untenable to upgrade your machine uh, as frequently. Um, you know, companies aren't going to want to upgrade their machine uh, until they've depreciated the hell out of it. So uh, I'm of the mindset that the cloud just just works for that. Um, what LucidLink is, is doing is great. Uh, I think that it's only at the beginning because there's a substantial amount of security that isn't in place uh, because you're streaming a proxy, which is that raw content. Nothing stops you locally from exporting. And, and you know, there's your there's your copy. Um, so I, I think we also look at things like uh, um, uh, the NLEs being able to support that universally, right? Right now, you can virtualize uh, any Windows app for the most part, and it's going to run. Uh, if you start looking at uh, LucidLink and different applications, that's not always the case. The app may not support uh, those files coming in in that way. So th I think uh, uh, there are two paradigms moving forward, and uh, uh, I think uh, you're just going to have to see which one works best for you uh, and what works best financially for the company. The choice isn't a bad thing. No. What, Zeke, what do you see as far as what's next? So I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think in the future, um, you know, we're not, we're not there yet, but the notion of a cloud-native workflow is sort of the next generation because today there really aren't any um, video acquisition devices that will allow you rec to record directly to cloud storage. Uh, that's, so, that's an interesting thing. Uh, I'm just going to pause for one second because 
over the years at NAB, there's been a number of products and technologies with Boost that were cloud editing already. They were online editors, you know, and, and they were sort of selling something like this. But the idea that you still have to get that media to the cloud, you know, a, a world right. where you could shoot into the cloud, then there's there's part of your problem right there. That's, right. I mean, oftentimes well, outside of our outside of our industry, that's that's being done. If you look at esports, right, uh, Elemental's been doing that for years. Uh, Amazon just shipped earlier this year a sub $1,000 box that you plug your SDI or HDMI into, and it transcodes it, pushes it up to the cloud, ready to go. Uh, well, industry leaders cool. like Telestream, uh, you know, have uh, Vantage, and they have cloud ports so you can yeah, push it. And I think those the challenge also, is, is that none of those are camera companies. So until Blackmagic and Ari and Sony, you know, the, the, the companies who the people responsible in production for recording content are choosing as their tools of choice um, are able to record and write natively into the cloud. The, the, the ability for people to kind of plan complete end-to-end -end cloud production uh, is going to be limited. So you have a, you know, you sort of have a first mile problem mm -hmm. in that the first thing in any cloud-based workflow is you have to get the media there. Um, and the more media you have, the the bigger of a, of a challenge that becomes. D doesn't um, JVC or didn't JVC and maybe more do, but they had a couple of cameras that has uh, wireless, you know, like uh, cell phones, connections built into them yeah. and, and you can yeah, a lot of those cameras have usb ports where you can put a 4g stick or a upcoming 5g stick sony used to ship a device that you could strap onto their camera and it would beam proxies up over wi-fi uh you can use something like live view uh to to push that up and then you have companies like frame.io who are, you know, have become, uh, I want to say the incumbent, but uh, in terms of review and approve on the web, but they obviously are looking forward and, and they, as Zeke said, uh, have a first mile problem, right? If you want people to use the cloud, you got to get the content in the cloud, so they have to use the cloud. Uh, Frame.io obviously has been working on a, a device that would latch on your camera and be able to take care of all that by getting low res and high res up to the cloud with the right metadata so you can do uh, you know, high-end workflows with HDR and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you have companies like that who are innovating to get that content into the cloud from minute one, it makes the rest of those cloud workflows that much easier. I think one of the things that we'll do on the way there, and, and this is something that companies like Bebop are already doing a great job with, is the, the notion of analytics in production. And again, you can stop for a minute and laugh about that, Scott, but... <laughs> You know, in, in the cloud uh, and, and with technology in general, analytics are, uh, you know, very popular, but they generally haven't been very much a part of, you know, the production and post-production ecosystems uh, up until this point. But when you have systems that can actually track and bill based on use, um, then your relationship between the users and the technology they're using can change. A as an example, you know, when you rent a traditional edit bay, you pay um, for a period of time that's predetermined. So you pay a weekly rate on an edit bay, whether you use it one day a week or seven days a week, you know, four hours a day or 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. That's not how billing in the cloud works. You actually only pay for what you use. And I think, you know, Michael would 
tell you that most people don't use as much as they think they do. Once they actually turn the meter on and you, you start to get analytics to say, hey, you're you know, your eight hours a day editors are really only editing about six hours a day. But that means you're saving 25% off of what you thought you were going to pay. So so just this notion of um, what do we need as a requirement and then what technology is required to do it is I, I think that moving forward, people are going to start to think more about um that equation and what makes the most sense. And certainly for things that you don't use all the time or you don't have the ability to use, um, you know, sort of multiple shifts a day, um, having an on-demand model uh, like the cloud uh, becomes more attractive. And I think sort of part and parcel to that is this notion of, you know, decoupling, you know, the users from the resources. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, virtualization technology can really be beneficial, especially for larger organizations. Because if you have employees doing the same tasks in different time zones or different geographies where you can utilize one pool of resources um, with one group while another group is asleep and vice versa, it, it allows you to become much more efficient with how many resources you need, much in the same way that, you know, virtualization technology in the IT world has allowed, you know, companies don't need a server in every office. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I think we're moving to a place where, you know, uh, uh, a pool of resources can be acquired and then can be distributed in a much more dynamic way based upon the given demands of a project. I don't think I like this idea of this uh, more more uh, specific billing because then they can say, hey, your editor bills you for eight hours, but their machine only ran for five and a half. So, I don't, well, I don't, Scott, I don't... you just need to raise your rates. <laughs> oh, man, if only. If only <laughs> and, and Scott, if only that, we could do that. That, that is uh, a completely valid and, and real world uh, discussion. Uh, as Zeke mentioned, you know, we have analytics that that are show that, you know, people tend to work 32 to 35 hours a week. We find that they tend to log in earlier from home. Uh, we see them log off uh, around lunch. We see them log off earlier, uh, uh, ostensibly for dinner. But then we see them come back later on sometimes. So it's interesting to see how uh, when you work from home, what the uh, actual hours of usage are and the creative cycle and, you know, what the expectation yeah. versus reality is with usage. Well, that's fascinating. And I'll, I think we'll kind of end it on here because as, as a self-employed freelance editor for some, you know, 20 some odd years or so now, um, I have had to make my own schedule in a sense and make sure the work gets done that needs to get done. And, and I think many people who can self-employ well, they know what needs to be done and they, and they get it done. Whereas sometimes when you're an employee, your employer thinks I need you here from eight to five, but I, I like that we're in this, we've learned something I think from this whole thing where good workers know the work that needs to be done. They do it, they do it well, they do it on time, they do it on budget. And most people, many people, I don't know most, when left to their own, their own work world can do that. They can get it done on time, on budget and properly and well. And I, and I like that a lot of people I think have discovered about themselves that they can do that and they didn't know they could. Some can't, some need to be managed and they need structure, but there are many that don't and kind of, kind of like not having structure. I like not having structure, but that's just me. Yeah. I think there's definitely 
more than one right answer. So uh, a lot of what determines what makes sense for any given company is going to be getting to understand what they need um, and finding someone who has expertise in the area, whether it's uh, a workflow consultant like Michael um, for cloud-based workflows or someone like myself for um, you know, on-premises workflows uh, that can really get to the heart of what they're trying to accomplish um, first uh, and then recommend appropriate tools to help them get there. Totally. Well, I think we're all so, uh, we know that if we come back to this discussion six months from now, a year from now, I'll be, it'll be very interesting to see where we are and where, uh, where things have gone. So, um, gentlemen, thank you for your time and, uh, let's reconvene this talk in six months and see exactly, exactly what, what has changed. Sounds good. Be my pleasure. All right. Until the next time, thank you for joining us on this uh, Pro Video Coalition podcast. And uh, keep, keep remote editing. <laughs>